your Bibles up to into Colossians chapter 1. You can have a Bible, or thanks to Bible and Pastor Steve, because I'll teach them. Get a physical Bible, because when you're in the bush and you need it, God calls you to preach something. You can open it up under a tree and you can just preach from it. And uh, the battery never runs out on your paper Bible. So do be ready to go to the nations, get yourself a paper Bible and a passport. God can use you. Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. What a wonderful passage of Scripture this is. He is, speaking of Jesus, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, with the thrones of dominions, the rulers of authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Some translations say that he might have the supremacy. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Upholding who Jesus is, according to the sacred scriptures, is as important in our world today as it was in Palestine 2,000 years ago. And that's just what Paul is doing. He's, he's starting off in this wonderful letter to the church that he's never met by making sure that the, the Jesus that they worshipped was the Jesus that was revealed to him on that road to Damascus, the Jesus who lived and died um, in uh, Israel and um, that, is, that is recorded for us in sacred scripture. And it's not surprising I was not surprised that what it actually makes sense, I suppose, if I was the devil, and I'm not, I want to make sure you're clear on that, that uh, in a diabolical way, that the thing that you want to attack more than anything else is the thing that is most precious and most sacred to the church of Jesus Christ. And that is the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done. And uh, one of the privileges that we have when we educate the world is not that we just get to preach the gospel, we, do we get to see some of the, the enemies, same old, same old tactics that he uses to undermine the truth of God's word. And uh, I think I was, you know, why when guys at week I was teaching them on the apostolic pattern, and I showed a video of a ministry trip that we had done some years back, eight, some, eight years I think ago, into the area of Zimbabwe to Rukitani, and we preached to a group of people called Zionists. They had church, they had priests, they had elders, they had prophets. They said that they believed in the name of Jesus. If you asked them that they were Christian, they would say, yes, of course we're Christian. But when you unpack their teaching a little bit, the picture of who Jesus was was not even close to what we see in the scripture. They, they knew about Jesus like somebody knows that there's a sea because they never visited the sea. But they don't know what it feels like to get into the water of the sea and the waves wash over them. They don't know what it smells like have that salty um, in the air. They, they don't know Jesus, they know of him. And then they distort him to be somebody that's distant and not interested in our world. And so they pray to intercede that they are feed him and Jesus. And mostly it's the ancestors and forefathers that they pray to. And it's, it, all it is is a distortion as to who Jesus is. And there is nothing, friends, more important for the church than to have the right understanding of who don't worship an idea like a general, like if you get in the ballpark, then that's fine. We don't worship any Jesus. We don't worship this general thing called God because many people. 
was the beginning of things. He worshiped God as he has revealed himself through his son, through Christ Jesus of Nazareth. And um, if we're honest, we admit that even our, our picture of God is influenced by circumstances. Like when you go through a you go through an amazing season of your life and there's money kind of flowing into your life and you go, oh God is just so generous. And and then but it's completely different. What happens to that God when you go through the season? Barely kind of make it each day, is he still the generous God that you believe? What about the, the culture or the values of the society that you're a part of? Because you know that values change, right? Things that were like, for example, listening to your parents used to be a general societal value. Nowadays, it's pretty much unimportant. You walk around in the world today, you go to almost any country, and you will see an example of children that don't listen to their parents. Like, Johnny, please don't do that. Johnny, don't do that. Johnny, if you do that, I'm going to... Johnny, not you, Johnny. I'll do Johnny. Maybe your dad will listen to this and... And, uh, and, uh, and then, okay, Johnny, just do it. It's like... And so what happens is it begins to shape our view of God. And so we say things like, or hopefully we haven't said this, maybe we've heard people say things like this, like, I know that's what the Bible says, but I don't believe God would actually allow something. For me, and so we, we begin to shift the Bible's revelation to God is and like, I'm not, God is love. And according to my view of what love is, God would never ask me to do that, or God would never do that, because because this is what I believe love is. It doesn't matter what the Bible says love is. I remember sitting with my brother the one time, and he had, um, at one point, he had um, been pursuing God, and he drifted into making mushrooms and cooking lamb and stuff like that. And he's still on that deep unfortunately. And we were having this conversation. He said, look, I believe love is the most important thing in the world. I said, well, God argue with that. And he says, um, and so I believe if a man can, can't, he's in a marriage and he's unhappy, he can't love other people until he loves himself. And his loving thing to do is divorce his wife and leave his children. I'm like, well, that's a definition of love. It's certainly not the Bible's definition of love. But can you see how we take what society thinks or the kind of what we figured out in our head in terms of what's the philosophy and then we begin to place that on it's like we wallpaper our Jesus until he begins to look nothing like the Jesus of the scriptures. The most important thing to us is the Bible's revelation of who Jesus Christ is. Now the last couple of weeks we see that he is the redeemer and deliverer of mankind. He is our source of significance. Not your job, not your um, ministry, not your children, not your wife. Jesus is the source of our significance and our fruitfulness in our lives. And today, we want to face a simple truth that Jesus is supreme. That's, that's what I'm saying today. And the question then, if we have to define what love means, is what do we mean when we say that Jesus is supreme? And does it really make a difference? Is it, is it not okay that I recognize him as an extraordinary human being? Maybe even the world's most profound teacher ever. Maybe we, we recognize him as, as a God with a small G, made by the real God, and he made Jesus to set an example or something like that. But does it really matter that I don't acknowledge him as supreme about everything? Well, by supreme, we're basically affirming that Jesus is God. Okay? That he is he's the top of the pop. He's above everything else. On the dictionary, the divine supreme is the highest in rank or authority 
and the highest degree or quality. So he's saying that there is no other above Jesus Christ. And that's that in itself. There's no person, no philosophy, no God or supernatural being that is above Jesus Christ. And his highest rank and degree, his love is perfect. His justice is perfect. His holiness is perfect. He is, he is the perfection of every attribute that we see um, and we would that we would imagine would ever be in the God that is perfect in power. That's what we mean by supreme. And when we talk about it like that, then we begin to think, well, it must matter. I remember years ago thinking, oh, Jesus came to Calvary, oh, he was on the throne. But I remember thinking, how oh, I had um, I had my boxes like this. And I had my career box and I had my um, sport box and I had my, my um, sex box my married wife, and I had my God box, and uh, everything had its little box, like it's, it's apparently how men's brains work anyway, we like to have things in boxes, and um, what happened, I was sitting one day, reading my Bible, I was sitting in the balcony of, of my um, apartment, and um, as I was reading the Bible, it suddenly dawned upon me that God can't be in a box. See, a revelation of the supremacy of Christ tells me he cannot be in a box. Then I'm putting them alongside everything. Even if the box of Jesus is higher than the other box, it's still a box. That came clear to me. It was almost like an epiphany as I sat there that moment. And it looked to me. I remember clearly where I was, where I was sitting. It was like it came to a place of full surrender to God. I said, okay, fine. Either I acknowledge that you are God, that you are supreme, and give me the place of supremacy over every area of my life. But if you become the God of my marriage, you become the God of my career, and you become the God of my sex, and you become the God of my uh, finances, and you become the God of my dreams, and you become the God of everything. Or I recognize that I'm living, I'm playing a game, and I and I actually turn my back on you. Either all or nothing with you. Jesus actually invites us to come to him and die. How's that for an invitation? Why don't you come to my house and die? That's what the gospel demands. It's this, this all um, utter surrender of our life to Christ. And, and some of us live with kind of like one foot in the world and one foot in Jesus like this. And we're wondering why we're not seeing the fullness of the gospel manifest in our lives. It's because we, we're not actually coming to the place of saying, actually, no, Jesus, you are supreme. I'm, I'm resting upon that revelation. Every area of my life, I'm going to trust you. One of the songs that we've sung quite a lot lately that I, um, I don't mind. I think we can oversing some songs. And we probably have oversung some songs. But it's been so anointed and it's ministered so much to me. I don't mind it. My family's been singing it all the time at home. And it's from Your Worthy of the Lord. And it starts off, and I love singing the, what do you call it? The chorus and the stanzas. Is that what they're called? The verses. So I love singing the verses as well. Because I don't know why we can just, just sing the verses. But it starts with going like this. All the saints and angels bow. And all the elders cast their crowns and sing. And it's a picture from Revelation chapter 5. And if you get your Bibles and you go home and you open up to Revelation chapter 5, it's like God in that moment just draws back the curtain of heaven and says to God, have a look what's going on up here. And he sees God on his throne and this 
the sea of glass before the throne and the living creatures worshipping and around the living creatures the elders who fall to their knees and cast their crowns at this. And around the elders are the, uh, are the angels that no one can count. It's just 10,000 times 10,000. Around them is, is all the saints and around them is all of creation, everything on the earth and in the heavens and in the sea and above the sea. And they're all declaring the word of the God. It's the most extraordinary chapter of God's glory. And then it goes on and says, you are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. You want to sing right now, hey? I know you do. And then these lines, and from you are all things, and to you are all things, to observe From you are all things, and from you are all things, and to you are all things. And we sing in Colossians. We've been singing over the weeks and months of Scripture. We've been, we've been allowing in our clothes to infuse into our spirits. We're declaring the supremacy of Christ, and it's what Paul is calling us to today. Wayne House is a um, renowned uh, theologian. He says this about this Christ hymn that Paul's quoting, it seems, in Colossians chapter 1. He says, Christ's supremacy is seen at every turn. The first portion focuses on his preeminent role in creation, while the second emphasizes his work as redeemer. This is the key. Many Christians in Colossae then or elsewhere today, like in Dubai, who may have been or is confused by Christ's role in the world, these six verses testify to Christ's absolute authority, and I would add glory, which is not to be shared with any other person, any angel, or any demon that lies behind any idol. Christ is supreme. And I'm going to touch this morning on three aspects of the supremacy. He's supreme in creation, he's supreme in a new creation, and he's supreme revelation. So verses, uh, verse 16 talks about the thing, it says that for by him all things were created. Everything. So by him your wife was created, your daughter was created, your son was created, your friends were created. By him the Himalayas were created, by him the oceans were created. By him, the angels were created. By him, everything seen and everything unseen was created. And um, I remember at school, we used to study time out time. So I'm trying to show you who wrote it. I'm going to say William Blake, because it just sounds like I know a close name, because that makes me look pretty. It's um, Tiger Tiger. Does anyone know who wrote it? Tiger. Oh, William. Whoa! Bring it on, bring it on, come on! And guy, if I remember, the Tiger Tiger burning bright. What awful hand, what fearful hand, far far awful. And I remember studying this as a boy in a school with, with our, my English teacher, his name was strange enough, Mr. Hutton, as a devout atheist. And he, he, I mean, he used to mock me for my faith in Jesus Christ. But I remember reading this and thinking, who made the tiger? What hand shaped and carved the tiger? And I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of going to India and seeing the Himalaya mountains. Mountains, or to Switzerland and see the Alps, Bruges, or whatever, Bernese, or whatever it is. In the, in, the, in the glory of these things, you just you see God. It's, it's like they're crying out about who he is. And Jesus made that. There is nothing that's made that wasn't made through Jesus Christ. And so if, if there's some sense to which we should give, what's the right word? Um, praise, I suppose, the art that you create. When you go stand in the room and you stand before some Rembrandt's work or 
whatever it is that you can that you can stand just amazed and, and marvel at the wonder of that offering. They were just repeating what was already created. How much more does the Creator deserve our praise and our honor at all times? And I want to remind you, we just step out of this building. I know our peace is not the greatest place to see the creation of God. And I'm, I may just close out on a long trip to India, and we're going to see whatever. Next time you see something in creation, I woke up this morning, the sky was blue, but the winter has arrived in Dubai. Thank you that. Thank you for that part of creation. Guys, I knew again. And there's a tree next to our house, and I sat in my life, and you could see the trees, and it's this blue sky, and it's like a fragrant thing. Got into the desert, and I don't know how many stars you can actually see in the desert, and both of them give glory to Jesus Christ. Or even just in the desert, and you see those beautiful trees, the sun setting, or out about the mountains, and you, as you stand over and wonder what is, and you can contemplate the glory. Let the praise of Christ just flow from you and join with nature to Jesus. The second thing it says in there is that he was before all things, under this, and he was supremely created. Jesus is uncreated. He is not, he's not somebody that's existed for a really long time. He is uncreated, he was before all things. He is eternally existed with the Father. And think about the implications of this. He, he isn't somebody who influences history. History is, as somebody once said, his story. History was created by God. Time was created by God. And he might receive the glory. Everything is for him. It's not about Donald Trump or anybody else that, that is that, that kind of draw attention. It's not about the pharaohs that built those pyramids that they might be immortalized. It's actually only for one person. This uncreated being who is before all things, the supreme all things, is God. And then in verse 17 it says, And in him all things hold together. He is the sustainer of all things. This is massive. See, Jesus doesn't create the earth and kind of wind up the clock like this. And you say, Okay, I'm going to let the earth kind of just do its thing like this. And he steps back and he doesn't put hands behind his head and ignores it. This life. Energize everything. Everything. Nothing can be sustained. Nothing continues without his life. It means his life energizes the universe. Because the stars and the moon and the earth and then the gravitational cycles that's actually in Jesus Christ. And I know the laws of gravity and all those things, the laws of nature that explain why it happens. But behind that is Jesus Christ to sustain all things. The reason the sun comes up, as it seems to be, in the morning is because Jesus Christ energizes the earth for that day. But the reason why we can breathe, why our lungs will receive him and expel air is because Jesus Christ sustains us. And so the idea of us being independent of him is, is like it's magic. It's like a two-month-old that could speak, saying, Mom, I don't need you anymore. I'm fine on my I can't talk. I can't poop without somebody else cleaning up. I can't eat. I don't even know where food is. I don't even know how to say the word eat. But I, I'm fine. I don't need you anymore. That's what it's like when a human being says, you know what, God, I don't need you. It's like, if you can't breathe without me, right, I'll, I'll be without air for now. And, and there's no way for you to live. There's, there is no existence without God. It takes us back to the Garden of Eden when Eve thought that, well, maybe I can be like God. Maybe I don't need him anymore. The demonic strategy that takes us away from this revelation of Christ is supreme in all creation. He's supreme over creation, over life and death. He's supreme over time, over redemption, over every authority, over judgment, justice, mercy, love, grace, and so 
everything that you can imagine. It's also supreme, just to tell us some of the new creation. In verses 18 to 20, Paul got in the center again to describe this work of Christ to come and rescue the lost people. Um, you know, you know Bible tells us about John, who he wrote his gospel, he's trying to put his name in there the whole time, so describe himself as being a disciple of Jesus' love. He had a very intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. He wasn't being a liar, he was just being honest, a disciple of Jesus' love. Peter, John, and um,
his hands like this to try and bring us back into the place of safety again. And it says here that not only are we alien, hostile in mind, but it's because we do evil things. And are we think ourselves, well, I mean, I've never been a serial killer or anything like that. Because I'm confessing to bring it up. Okay. Thank you for being here. I've never been a serial killer. I'm not a genocidal maniac. I'm, I'm not a this or a that. Whatever standard you put in place, like, I'm not doing evil deeds. But every time we don't love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, the thing that we were created for, we are, and we resist the use of our lives. That's what we And every thought and attitude that puts us ahead of anybody else and us ahead of God, and every selfish expression of that, which happens in a million ways, is that it becomes not just our inheritance sin, but our personal sin of our lives. All of those things are wickedness that separate us from God. And that bad news is followed by more bad news. I'm not, I'm not encouraging you much today. It's that we are separated from God and we can't do anything about it. It says in Psalm um, 49, verse 7, hey, Robbie, the Lord bless you with my Psalm 49, verse 79, it says, No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. A ransom for a life is costly. Listen to this. No payment is ever enough. That he should live on forever and not see decay. It's like, like I might go to God one day and say, You know, Lord, I, I want to pay the price for my sin. Matthew. I want to bear the price of this sin and you can have my life. You can care for me with a sacrifice. And the truth is, I'm so tainted, my sacrifice would be worthless. This, 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 that's what the Bible says. No life is sufficient. And we can't save ourselves. We can't save each other. No man can do it. And if I could do it, if my life were able to be a ransom, I could just be a ransom for one person. I'm one human being as a ransom for another. But the good news is this, is that Christ is a sufficient price. He, because he never sinned. And he comes as a perfect sacrifice. That's why we said our God is a lion, the lion of Judah. He's fighting our battle. But our God is also the lamb, the lamb that was slain. And, um, and Jesus Christ comes as a perfect sacrifice. And he's enough because he is also, he's not just a man, he's also a God. And when God dies upon that cross as a substitute, and he bears the penalty of that sin, if I were a perfect sacrifice, I could die for one of you and maybe be the substitute. But Jesus Christ can die for the sins of the whole world. And all those that will come to him in faith and receive his forgiveness will be washed of their sin, and they'll be able to be reconciled to God. God is enough. Verse 19 to says, For in him the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. In other words, it is God in Jesus Christ. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Maybe you're not sure that this is true. The saints are wrong. This just seems too good to be true. And normally when things are too good to be true, they are not true. And so... I, and I understand that. I'm, I'm trained to be skeptical. I was an auditor, and so when I would go speak to clients and they would tell me something, my assumption was they were lying. I had to, I don't, thank you for saying that, but I need a piece of paper to prove what you just said. That was how I was trained. And um, in this place, Dubai, man alive teaches me to be skeptical. I, I bought a car a little while ago, and uh, I bought it from this guy that I didn't know, and he had a loan with the bank, so I went to my bank and I said, I need to buy a car, can I have money to get this guy to buy the car? The bank said to me, of course you can have the money to buy the car. It's fantastic. But only when the car's in your name. So how the heck am I going to buy the car then? So I said, that's 
come out from your throat problem. But that is a guy, and he's got a line on his car that he needs to pay off to this bank, and he can't pay it off until he gets the money from me to pay off the loan. So now, starts this ridiculous situation. I borrow money from somebody, a friend of mine. I go to this man, and I give him the money for the, the, the price of the car. He goes to his bank, and he pays off his car loan. So now he's got the money and the car both in his name. I am wise enough to do some Facebook research. Facebook is an amazing tool. I find you guys on Facebook. Anyway, I do some research. I find he's a friend of a friend, so I contact a friend. I said, do you actually know this man? He doesn't know this guy. He's a church together with him. So I find a little bit of background information. And then I get a, a passport from the guy. Well, but even that, I don't know if it's going to be given a chance because the guy can have two passports. It's going to be gone with the money. Anyway, he then transfers the car into my name. It's now in my name. He took the money out of the car. Then I go to the bank because now I need to get the loans so I can pay my friend back the money. But the bank puts the check in his name, the guy that I'm buying the car from. So he takes my check and goes and cashes it in his bank. So now he's got, he's got the money I first gave him and he's got the other money that I gave him. And I've got what might be a fake passport. So have I paid double for this car? And then such a divine way, we agreed to meet at a metro station and, at, and over the and over the barrier like this, I've given this pulse back and he hands me a lot of money like this. And, uh, and that's how the deal is brought in. And I promise you, I was skeptical. I'm like, what if this and what if that? It's like, it's like made for fraud. You know what I mean? And what if we stand before God one day and it turns out he wasn't enough? What if I sinned that we thought I didn't trust this Jesus? Maybe, maybe it's, it's not. What if, what if actually it was good works? What if it was like some religious thing that I had to do? What if just depending upon Jesus Christ is not enough? What if I get to the train station and there's no one waiting there for me and I'm with a fake pastor that counts nothing and I'll pay double what I should have paid for the car? And Paul anticipates this and he writes, he says, Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. See, this is the, the proof, if you want, the evidence that, that what Christ did on the cross was sufficient. The grave could not hold him. Death could not keep him. And so he was resurrected to life. And in his resurrection, we have the promise. We have the guarantee. We have the proof that we too, one day, who trust in his finished work, will also rise from the dead and spend eternity with the Father. Finally, Jesus is supreme in Revelation. God, Paul starts his passage in, in verse 15 and he says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And the Bible uses two different words to describe the sin of image. The one in Genesis 1, 27, which is the Hebrew word, this is the Greek, obviously, it talks about that um, God talking amongst himself, themselves, because God is three in one. And he says, says this in Genesis 1, 27, so let's make man in our image. And that is the word likeness. And we can see the likeness of God, but we are not like God. We are not gods. And the, and the and that image is everyone. You can find somebody of a different religion, somebody who, who hates God, and then see them take their child up and look with unconditional love into the eyes of a child like this. And you can actually move the tears by this incredible expression that takes place here. What you're seeing is the image of God, the likeness of God is taken in that body. And mankind is, even without God, is capable of some of the most extraordinary acts because we were made in the image of God and His likeness. And that it's the same kind of way as like when you when you see a child that looks like its parents. Mine don't, but my um, whatever. I just I wanted somebody to look exactly like me. Sometimes it, it didn't happen apparently. Hannah's likened by nature though, 
But some people feel like it's a little mini me walking around. Maybe like, it's like, what? It's crazy. And, um, and that's a likeness. But if you know that cloud, you don't know the parent. It's still, a, it's still something distinct. And they can end up being unlike the parents in amazing ways, even physically they, they look like them in many ways. But this, when it speaks here that he's the image of the invisible God, is using another word which speaks of the exact representation. It's, it's like, like if you wanted to see God and you look into a mirror like this and God's standing up in here and you see him reflected directly like that, you see him exactly as he is. And when we look at Jesus Christ, we see the mirror reflection of God, of who God is. And it's, it's Christ who makes the invisible visible. You see, we have no capacity of knowing who God is. See, it's not that God is invisible in every respect. He's invisible to us. In heaven, He can be seen. He sits upon the throne. He can be seen. But by our natural eyes, He can't be seen. And how do we know somebody we can't see? That Christ comes to reveal Him uh, to us. And if you said, if you said to me, like, you know, Rob, if God would just show up one day, I would be able to believe. If I could just, just, why? If he's real, why doesn't he just suddenly, like, in Star Trek, make, you know, when they, when they beat me down to study, and Jesus is standing there right now. So if that happened, then I would believe. And um, you're not the first person to say that. Thomas said the same thing. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, and, and the disciples said, we've seen him. When I put my fingers in his, in his hand, or when I put my, my hand in his side, then I'll believe. And then Jesus appears before him. And he says this, uh, and, and, and Thomas falls out and worships him. He says, you're the blessing of those that believe without sin. And Philip, one of the disciples of Jesus, says this to Jesus in John chapter 14, verses 8 to 10. He says, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for me. Just, that's all I, all I need. If you, you can just show me the Father. Can't you just... Take us with you quickly to heaven so I can see the Father face to face and that will be everything. And Jesus' response is to actually incredulous. He says, I've been with you so long and still you don't, you don't know me, Philip. He said, Show us the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So no one can know God the Father unless He reveals Himself. And no one knows prophets. No law, no writings can reveal God the Father. There's no one who's fully exposed to God the Father other than Jesus Christ. He says, only the one who has come from heaven can reveal the one who is in heaven. And he is that supreme revelation. The life goes through some principles and uh, leaves you wondering about the nature of God. Does he care? Does he even love me? Can he do anything about the situation I'm in? When God seems to be distant or powerless or disinterested, we look again at Jesus Christ. And in him we see that God heals when we are broken. We see that God calms the storm when we are full of doubt and fear. God is merciful even when we don't deserve it. And God is faithful even when we are faithless. In Christ, God has revealed himself and perfected. 